So kind of the two things that we think about a lot. So first of all, we think it's important to put Bitcoin sort of in context with, 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 with where it actually is. And so Bitcoin is, right, Bitcoin's only existed for five years. The original paper came out in 2009. Um, I think the relevant comparison point for Bitcoin is actually about 1993 for the consumer internet. Um, and, or 1994, actually. And I say that because, like, 1989 was actually when the web was actually first invented, when HTTP and HTML were invented. And there was, like, this five-year period between 89 and 94 where those of us who were working kind of on the early, you know, at the time, NSFNet um, and on early Mosaic, you know, you could kind of use this stuff and you could see it. Um, but it was really fringe and really new and really weird and really scary and really odd. Um, and then, you know, it just, it, you know, it, it kind of arrived as a fringe technology. Um, and then, by the way, it arrived with fringe politics, um, and it arrived with fringe characters. Um, and there were actually a whole cast of characters in that era, uh, some of whom became actually very successful, um, some of whom are, are uh, you know, historical uh, figures now. Um, but there were a whole set of sort of fringe characters who had these sort of crazy ideas. Um, many of the actual technical ideas turned out to be absolutely correct. Um, many of the political ideas, you know, are, are, depending on your point of view, turned out to be correct or not correct, and actually a fair number of people got disillusioned. Uh, politically kind of through that process, um, but it worked. Um, and there was this process of maturation um, through which it worked. And so I, I, I think that the, the critique of Bitcoin as sort of you know, being fringe technology accompanied by fringe politics and fringe characters, I don't know how you get fringe technology without fringe politics and fringe characters. Um, you just have to go through a maturation process where you come out the other end and the fringe technology goes mainstream and gets widely adopted. Um, along the way, the fringe characters and the fringe politics tend to get alienated and then tend to move on to the next fringe technology, and the cycle repeats. Um, but you don't get the new technologies from the mainstream. Um, you get them from the fringe. And so I, I think this is a case study of that. You know, every single one of the kinds of things that you mentioned um, is, is an example of, of kind of how I think the early stages of this adoption cycle happen. So it, it would be really shocking if this kind of thing weren't happening. It would be very historically unusual if this kind of thing weren't happening. Um, speaking for us, um, we are, consider ourselves mainstream investors, um, uh, and we consider ourselves in the business of building mainstream companies. We only invest in companies that want to be on the regulatory straight and narrow. Um, and so the thing, like, we don't take any chances on for something that has, like, you know, implications like Bitcoin um, is, you know, we would not take chances on somebody who's going to run an exchange the way that Mt. Gox got run or anything like that. Like, you know, Coinbase is our big public investment, and they're extremely rigorous uh, about being properly licensed. Um, and so everything we do will kind of fall in that category. Yeah, none of those guys passed our diligence. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Coinbase was your, your first big Bitcoin investment. Um, it, it's interesting, this, the signal to noise on Bitcoin, because it's just one of the many companies that you're invested in. I mean, we're talking about uh, Oculus Rift out there, um, but you talk so much more about it. Um, uh, does, has it come to really just dominate um, your kind of talking points uh, in a way that you didn't expect, or did you always know it would be like this? Well, Bitcoin, I mean, is uh, it's a phenomenon, right? It is, it's not just, I mean, Oculus will also become an ecosystem and so on, but uh, Bitcoin is something where we think of it as potentially on the scale of the next internet. So as such, necessarily, it's gonna occupy more and more of our time and a lot of our portfolio companies can integrate it. So it's not like just one technology in one company, it's kind of cross-cutting. Um, so that's kind of, we think of Bitcoin like mobile. It's not one company, it's something that is broad. And how did you decide on Coinbase as the, the beginning? So they'd kind of gone through a natural selection process, right? Like uh, in the sense that um, we, we'd been tracking them for a while and uh, they're very smart guys who had implemented a ton of features uh, on top of you know, both enterprise features like you know, the merchant API and so on, as well as consumer features like the ability to purchase you know, Bitcoin on the website while maintaining regulatory compliance on a 
shoestring budget, right? Anybody who can do a lot on a little is somebody who uh, is a good candidate for venture investment because if they can do this much on say one million or 500,000, what can they do on much more than that, right? Um, so it's a kind of a natural selection process. Um, and then I assume you guys are not done uh, investing in Bitcoin companies. Um, yeah. what, what are you looking to uh, put money into? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give the general answer and then Malaji yeah. has some yeah, specific sure. ideas. So the general answer is we think there's a whole ecosystem here. And I mean, we think the ecosystem's already forming. I mean, in a lot of ways, we view ourselves as reacting, um, which is basically we're now seeing hundreds of high quality entrepreneurs uh, and high quality technologists, you know, kind of people you'd consider to be top tier, uh, top tier people in any field um, who are working on all kinds of ideas. Um, and, you know, sort of ideas spread the full, uh, the full gamut of everything you can imagine. Um, and so we do think of it as an, as a, as an ecosystem. You know, again, I'll go back to the internet analogy. In 1994, as a venture capital firm, it would have been a good idea to take the internet seriously, and it would have been a good idea to invest in a cross-section of internet infrastructure companies, internet application companies, uh, internet content companies. You know, you, you just, you could have made a whole series of bets. The venture firms that did do that did, you know, extremely well. Um, and so our goal here is to do that, basically do a, 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 basically build a portfolio of diversified bets in all the different areas of the ecosystem. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, so on uh, certain things we're looking at uh, specifically, um, one of the things we've thought a lot about is that Bitcoin is like an inverted pyramid right now. There's a lot of news coverage nowadays, right? And there's an increasing number of companies and investors. There's relatively few people who are working on the core protocol and you know that kind of activity, right? Like you know, not that many developers who are actually working on GitHub.com Bitcoin Bitcoin. And um, so there's two uh, kinds of vehicles that we're looking for in particular to fix that. Uh, people in the audience might be interested in, in doing things like this. So one is. Um, like a Red Hat for Bitcoin, right? So Red Hat was a seminal company in the early days of the internet, you know, founded 1993. You know, they professionalized Linux development, uh, both creating both user-friendly uh, Linux distributions as well as later Red Hat Enterprise Linux and enterprise-friendly distributions. So a vehicle like that, uh, a Red Hat for Bitcoin, I think would be a very interesting thing to fund and to look at something that had a critical mass of uh, core developers. And, um, you know, while in theory, you know, uh, a consulting company may not uh, make that much money. In practice, Red Hat has made like, you know, it's $11 billion market cap. And I think there's very few things that are going to grow like Bitcoin consulting over the next, you know, three to five years. Everybody's going to need a, you know, a wallet on their website to accept payments. It's going to be something where millions of websites are going to be retrofitted to accept this. You're going to get it into the Internet of Things. You're going to get it all over the place. So Bitcoin consulting is a growth area. Moreover, uh, there's all kinds of new ways to monetize 20 years later, you know, uh, on the internet. You could have a Red Hat for Bitcoin that, say, had ads or affiliate codes on the download, you know, site for, uh, uh, for the Bitcoin wallets. You could uh, do things like Teespring to monetize. There are many different ways to monetize it. And Bitcoin itself gives ways to monetize new monetization models for open source. Um, and the second kind of uh, company that we'd like to uh, fund, in addition to Red Hat for Bitcoin, is like an underwriter's laboratories uh, for Bitcoin. So Underage Laboratories uh, does kind of electronic certification, like safety testing and so on. So development of something along the lines of PCI compliance standards for Bitcoin, as well as the inspections to kind of uh, check that security and stuff like that is, uh, is well done on, on these kinds of sites, I think is going to be a very important company that's going to come out there. And, um, you know, the... Uh, the thing about that is we've already had that sort of organically happening, part of that, like uh, recently Coinbase and blockchain did a home and home where each of them went and looked at each other's security and then published the results and, and so on. And um, I think an organization like that that sets up, uh, that productizes it, uh, is going to be pretty important. So those are two things in particular that we're thinking about. Okay, and Ernst & Young for Bitcoin? Uh, well, yeah, sort of. I, I, I prefer Underwriters Labs because it's a little more technical, but yes, yeah, similar, audits. Uh, anything else that you think is missing from the Bitcoin ecosystem? 
a ton of companies out there. I mean, um, there's there's a lot of very interesting things out there, but I do think that people should focus on the core infrastructure uh, and um, you know, things that are a little bit lower level or maybe more interesting to us because um, that's under invested in or thought about right now. Okay. Yeah, the other thing I'd say is like we're we're getting uh, increasingly amped up over the idea of basically Bitcoin is an enabling technology for other technologies, um, and so for especially for machine to machine kinds of things, and mm -hmm. so. You know, there's all these scenarios where machines talk to other machines and there's all these issues with resource contention and who gets priority on a phone call or a video stream or, you know, who gets to, um, you know, who gets to fight, you know. But my, my favorite example is, you know, your car is driving down the street, your car now has a, you know, has a wireless uh, connection and an operating system in it. Um, and you, you've got your smartphone, which has a wireless connection and an operating system. And you've got, you're driving next, you know, driving next to a parking garage and like, do you have, number one, any idea of whether there's a, a spot in the parking garage that's open, which is sort of question number one. And then question number two is, boy, I'd sure like to be able to just buy that. Um, and when I pull in, like pull in, park the car, get out of the car, leave, and have the transaction happen automatically. Um, and in a place like San Francisco, where there's always more cars than there are uh, uh, parking lots, maybe there should be a real-time auction uh, happening between cars and garages uh, for allocation of parking spots. Um, today, you'd have no technical way whatsoever to implement that. It's not like you're going to do that with credit cards. It's, it's not feasible um, for a variety of reasons. But with Bitcoin, it'd be completely feasible to do a real-time auction between the car and the garage. Um, and, and just kind of extrapolate that example across, you know, thousands, ultimately millions of cases um, where you've got, you know, sort of limited resources, you've got, you know, potentially unlimited demand, um, you've got the ability to use prices uh, to, uh, to basically set a marketplace. Um, and since Bitcoin can scale way down in value, you could do this with very, very small amounts of currency. Why? But, I mean, the anti-spam idea is the other one that we just, right. we always love. And it, it may be too late to fix email, but like clearly the way to fix email spam the entire time was to have there be like a microcharge for every message sent. Where as normal people sending 100 emails a day or 1,000 emails a day, it would make no difference. It'd be a rounding error. It'd be a fraction of a penny. Um, but for spammers that send billions of emails, it, you know, it would bankrupt them. Um, and it, it, this idea is an old idea. And 20 years ago, we were talking about this idea. We just had no way to implement the payments uh, behind it in order to do that. Um, and you know, basically, every new social system that comes online now has a spam issue. Um, and so um, I do think uh, you know, this is the kind of uh, enabling technology that would make whole new kinds of anti-spam approaches work. And so just extrapolate those ideas broadly across anything where you have limited resources and you'd want to you know, sort of use markets to make things work. I think the, the micropayment um, um, uh, feature of Bitcoin, and I, this, you know, small fractions makes a, a lot of sense with cutting down on spam. Um, why do you see Bitcoin as being central to this kind of parking garage uh, auction? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so well, the thing is that um, for the first time you can have a wallet file that is, I mean, you can hit keys and set up a program that contains money in it. You don't need, or let's say a monetary, something of monetary value. You don't need um, a, a, a bank to allow you to do that and so on. You can transmit across the network. So this decentralizes the ability to write programs that involve monetary value. And as an analogy, one of the reasons the internet was so exciting is before the internet, you had the central backbone operator, the AT&T or what have you, uh, that you had to do a business development deal with in order to deploy code on the network that dealt with communications. Uh, and afterwards, you could write programs that took one node and not, not only sent other nodes, but programmatically exchanged packets back and forth. So things like P2P, online forums, and so on were not really possible when you're you know, working with AT&T. In kind of the same way, uh, we have this sort of legacy financial system where, you know, five, six years ago, in order to send something of monetary value, you had to work with Wells Fargo, you had to work with Visa, et cetera, et cetera. But now you can write a program that doesn't just work with one person sending value from one person to another. Um, it can be a P2P kind of thing. It can involve machines. It can involve non-humans. And you don't need, you know, the approval of, of a, a bank to, to do that. You can have a hobbyist doing it 
in their garage. So I think the barrier to entry to writing these kinds of programs, in theory you could do it, in theory you could always use a PayPal API and so on. In practice, it's gonna be much easier to do with Bitcoin. That's one. Then number two is um, the fact that you can subdivide payments down to Satoshi to like 100 millionth and that the payments are non-reversible means that um, a lot of machine-to-machine -machine applications now become open that weren't before, right? So those are kind of two reasons. So Bitcoin is this incredible transformational technology, uh, yet it was around for about four years before the mainstream business uh, community started investing in it, becoming interested in it. And the illicit uh, business community seemed to recognize the promise of Bitcoin much earlier. Why did it take so long for uh, guys like you to come around? <laughs> uh, I, I think that most technologies you know, start out like you know, the Wright brothers, you know, with, with their aircraft was not really much to look at at the beginning, right? Like early cars had explosions, and um, the early internet certainly had a lot of interesting characters on it for quite a while before normal people got onto it by the mid and late 90s. Um, I think there, there's a few reasons in particular for Bitcoin. One is that the founder remains pseudonymous, and most of the time, you know, with a company or any kind of open source project, whether it's Linus with Linux or, you know, Larry Page with Google, the founder's out there and they're putting their name on the line and they've got some credibility and so on and it builds. Um, but so pseudonymous founder meant the code had to speak for itself uh, and the theory had to speak for itself. The second aspect is for a protocol like this, something that is sending monetary value, it should, the theory should work, but in practice it should also work. And so having like four years where people were bashing on it in different ways, I think was very important to seeing that it actually worked in the real world. People were, had a strong incentive to try various kinds of exploits. So far they haven't really gone too far and that's a major sign of, uh, of strength. Um, and then finally I think the 2011 crash where the price of Bitcoin rose to 33 and then came down to two and then came back up was an extraordinary indicator of the strength of the community of Bitcoin, right? It's not gonna let it die. And so, you know, that's a, that WIFIO moment, if you've you know, seen our recent blog post, right? Like, um, we kind of knew there's a resilience to the community there. So those are kind of reasons why, uh, you know, I think it, it was the right time to get involved in a big way last year. I also say, I think the illicit use stuff is overblown. Um, so one of the funniest things in the last six months has been this uh, senator in West Virginia, Joe Manchin, uh, decided to distinguish himself by writing a letter demanding the immediate banning of Bitcoin because it's used for all these illicit purposes. Uh, Jared Polis, who's a young congressman who's extremely sharp, um, wrote basically the exact same letter uh, to the exact same, uh, to the Treasury Department, basically calling for an immediate ban on the US dollar. Um, okay. Using the exact same arguments, um, right? Which is you have this currency, you have this anonymous currency, the US $100 bill, um, that can be freely transported all over the world. Uh, without anybody's approval and can be used to buy, you know, drugs and guns. And in fact, today is used to buy drugs and guns, you know, at like, you know, at a million times the rate of, of any sort of online uh, payment mechanism. Um, you know, the U.S. $100 bill is the enabling technology for worldwide crime and terrorism. Um, and, you know, I think, frankly, he had a pretty good point. Um, uh, and so I, I think it just, it, it, it illustrates kind of this kind of, I, I use the term weird and scary, um, the new things just look weird and scary. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's, you know, one idiot in, you know, apparently in Noe Valley, as it turns out, uh, with an online drug thing or something, and then it, you know, becomes this enormous, enormously attractive story. But the Alyssa stuff turns out, it's, it's, it's a very sexy story at the time, it turns out to not be a very big part of it. The exact same, happen, the exact same thing happened in the early 90s with the internet. There was, if, if you read the coverage from sort of 1991 to 1994, it was story after story after story of child porn and this, and you could buy drugs, and it was like, and it was just like this horror show you know, for God's sake, you wouldn't want to let your teenager go in this crazy internet thing, because like, who knows what would happen? I mean, it was just an endless litany of all the social ills that were gonna come out of it, um, as people were getting used to the idea of something new. Um, and then, you know, by 1995, 1996, everybody went, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Um, and so I think we're just, we're somewhere in that. But, but I think the illicit stuff's overblown. I would also say, I think the illicit stuff, 
um, our conversations with uh, people in um, the government who are uh, who do work involving crime and you know, uh, uh, financing of crime and terrorism. Um, and we've had some very interesting conversations. Um, the smart people in the government have figured out that Bitcoin may be an enormous ally to them, uh, in particular for counter-terror, uh, for their counter-terror programs, because the idea of having a public ledger um, that has pseudonyms uh, that all transactions pass through and can be inspected um, is tremendously attractive to people who specialize, for example, in uh, large-scale network analysis, um, uh, who may or may not have been in the press recently. Um, you know, and again, as contrasted to people using paper currency or people using gold or people using cocaine or people using, you know, other kinds of, you know, effectively underground currencies um, like the U.S. dollar, um, uh, it's actually a fairly attractive thing to be able to mine uh, the blockchain uh, to be able to uncover those things. My prediction actually is libertarians are actually going to turn on Bitcoin. Um, I think that's like two years out. And that'll be part of the mainstreaming. The libertarians will basically discover that the blockchain is public and that will cause just like enormous freakout. <laughs> Well, then they'll move on to zero coin. Glenn, Glenn Beck is going to get very upset. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, not knowing who the founder is. Recently, Newsweek said that they thought that they had found the, the founder, Dorian Nakamoto, um, a man in California. And you guys, you know, uh, put that article on Rap Genius and kind of savaged it. Uh, I was wondering who, if you guys think you know who Nakamoto is and whether you think it matters who it is to the investing community, to the businesses that are in Bitcoin. I'd say, so I don't think it matters right now. Um, I think uh, if Satoshi ever came forward, certainly we'd fund him, um, but, or her, or them. Um, but, but, you know, modulo that, uh, I think it's kind of, um, you know, in statistics, you've got this concept of Bayesian probability. And once you have enough measurements from something, you know, you, you've shifted over and you don't need the prior distribution anymore. And so the code has taken enough looks at it and it's been deployed in enough places and it's supported enough transactions and so on and so forth that the author of it is not the way you judge it anymore. I mean, if you think about it, you go and read a math book and you look at a formula and res ipsa locator, right? Like you can see, you know, there it lies, right? Like you can, you can look at the formula and check it for itself. You don't need to go and say, oh, Newton figured this one out or Legendre figured this one out. It's not argument from authority, it's argument from cryptography, right? Um, so. That's a, you know, kind of reason number one why I don't think the founder matters. In terms of who the founder actually is, everybody has you know, kinds of theories about this. Um, I, I personally think that if you read all of Satoshi's emails and uh, you know, public forum postings and stuff, there's remarks he makes like, or, or she or, or them, uh, where uh, they say, for example, degrees of freedom when they mean degrees of separation, right? That's an indicator of often a physicist, you know? And that kind of fits with the model of, say, somebody who is on Wall Street and who is a quant, uh, and you know, a lot of quants have a physics background, is pretty sophisticated about finance, uh, who can code C++ because they've got a lot of high-frequency trading kinds of uh, things, um, who also knew cryptography. So if you take a quant on Wall Street and who knows cryptography, that's sort of, you know, uh, most likely suspect, I think. And it's completely different from Dorian Nakamoto, who, uh, you know, is the most ludicrous candidate. I mean, you know, somebody who goes to such extents to retain anonymity, who signs all their transactions with their middle name, it's, it, it completely blows my mind to think that that was, like, put forth as a reasonable thing and that people actually believed it. Um, so that's why we critiqued it. I would also say, I, I've been um, talking a lot recently about, there was a British uh, author, chemist actually, chemist and novelist um, named uh, C.P. Snow, uh, who wrote in the middle of the 20th century, um, sort of at the height when physics was kind of the new technology everybody was freaked out about, so the bomb and nuclear energy and all these things. Um, and he sort of wrote this famous essay uh, where he talked about the two cultures. And at the time, what he was talking about was two cultures of sort of science versus the literary culture. 
Um, and basically, he described this kind of cultural divide that was forming where basically, and it, it, it basically mirrors exactly what's, what happening, what's, what's happening today, where basically the sort of engineering culture, science culture, technical culture, math culture, you know, kind of feels like it's running away with the future um, and, you know, sort of feels very confident and, you know, sort of feels like it's discovered the secret formula to, to progress. Um, and then sort of the literary culture, liberal arts culture, um, you know, non-technical culture, um, of sort of normal people who aren't engineers, you know, increasingly feels like, you know, this technical stuff is getting like really weird and scary. And I mean, you know, the atomic bomb, Bitcoin, like, you know, um, <laughs> interesting analogy, but, um, uh, you know, sort of these sort of fundamental, you know, technology breakthroughs that like look like they're going to change the world in unpredictable ways. Um, and for non-technical people, that can be weird and scary because who knows what the consequences are going to be and who, and who knows, uh, you know, how to think about these things. Um, money is interesting in that context because money is something that I would argue has been on the non-technical side of the culture for, for, you know, for the last you know, thousand years, for the last 300 years for sure, um, uh, with paper money and then before that, which is when, when sort of normal people think about money, they think about money in terms of who can you trust. Who can you trust, right? So which institution can you trust? Can you trust the U.S. government and government officials? Can you trust the U.S. Treasury Department? Can you trust the U.S. You know, mint? Um, to catch, you know, counterfeiters. Um, it's, it's, it's very much, uh, you know, can you trust the banks? Can you put your money in the bank? Or are you going to be able to get the money back out? Do you trust the bank? Do you trust the government standing behind the bank? And so sort of our, our sort of cultural, broad cultural view of money is it's based on trust in people and institutions. On the engineering side of things, people and institutions are beside the point. The core of it is can you trust the math, right? Can you trust the math? Can you trust the algorithms? Can you trust the code? And can you trust cryptography? Um, and so part of what's happening right now is engineers look at this and they're like, oh, it's obvious that, 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 that Bitcoin is better because it's math that you can trust as opposed to people who you just never know, as we discovered in 2008. Um, normal people look at that and they're like, how can you trust math? Like, does that mean you have to be a mathematician, right? You have to have a PhD in mathematics in order to understand, or computer science to understand this stuff. Um, and so I think what has to happen is actually the cultures have to come together. Um, and for that to happen, basically, you know, two things are required, which is one is the engineering culture, which we represent and which a lot of us, you know, here today represent. We have to really work hard to be able to explain this stuff um, and articulate it and simplify it and make it easy to use and make it understandable. And we have to reach across um, and we have to bring people with us um, as opposed to just having this be something that's going to freak everybody out. Um, but people on the other side of the culture, people in the literary, liberal arts, you know, sort of um, uh, non-technical culture, need to be open-minded um, and need to be willing to engage and understand and learn. Um, and that's a big part of what I think has to happen over the next three years. Does that have anything to do with why you've made the big return to Twitter, being yes. able to talk a lot about Bitcoin and kind of steer the conversation? Yeah, and we, I, I think we, and I, I mean the collective way, I think like we, all of us, everybody in, the, in, the, in Silicon Valley, everybody in the Bitcoin world, everybody in the technology industry, I think we have an obligation to explain ourselves. Um, I think that the, the days, and again, this goes right back to CP Snow, the days where you could, you know, the days where you could have something, you know, as fundamentally important as Bitcoin that just uh, gets, create, you know, gets, gets created, unleashed on the world, and everybody's expected to adapt to without having it get translated from weird and scary to like, okay, you can like actually wrap your head as a normal person around this. Like, that's our responsibility. Like, that's not going to happen by itself. By the way, that, that had to happen with the internet. It did happen with the internet. Um, it had to happen with PCs. It did happen with PCs. So this, this does happen. Um, we're just right in the middle of it, right? Or right, we're actually right at the beginning of it right now. And so we, we just, we still have quite a ways to go. The other thing is also, like, kind of how this arose is not the way that, like, sort of, it arose in the opposite of, like, an institutional top-down kind of thing, right? You know, Bitcoin arose because somebody had entered on the internet. Right, like five years ago, somebody had entered on the internet. They put something on a forum post. Now we're all here today, and you go to BitLegal.net, and all these governments are reacting to this person who basically hit enter on a forum post. Right, um, and so that's completely different from the model of like this top-down 20th-century model that's I think very common there. 
Uh, one thing that we do have high hopes for are some of these new media institutions like 538, like Box.com. Uh, 538 knows doing some stuff on Bitcoin, and they're run by quantitative people who are kind of a merger of these sort of two cultures. Uh, and so I have high hopes for the kind of journalism that they'll do on Bitcoin. And of course, Forbes is doing an outstanding work. <laughs> yes, that's must right. Must be noted. Yes. Thank you, Mark. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and Mark, you, I mean, you came forward with that uh, very influential New York Times piece about why Bitcoin matters. And I assume that everybody in this room has read that, and I don't need you to go over the points you made. Um, but there was a response from um, Glenn Fleischman on Medium, and he went into some of the negatives. He said that you didn't cover, including the fact that we don't know what will happen with transaction fees as Bitcoin continues to evolve. Um, I was curious which of Bitcoin's negatives you guys are most concerned about or you know, central on your radar. So conceptually, what is so striking, and this is why we refer to Satoshi, I refer to Satoshi as a genius, um, he, she, it, or they. Uh, I, by the way, I wouldn't rule out it. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah time traveler. Like software, <laughs> software, <laughs> yeah, robots, yeah. you know, Skynet. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I refer to Satoshi as a genius, and the reason, the reason I, do, I use that word, I, I don't use that word a lot, and I, I use that word very specifically, which is, and this is part of the ad, adaptation process, at least I went through in learning about this, which was you, you kind of, you know, you hear about Bitcoin and you're just like, that's just crazy, you know, made up fake mathematical currency, like, you know, whatever, um, like the crazy kids are going at it again. Um, and then you get into it and you start to wrap your head around the peer-to-peer -peer thing and you start to wrap your head around the proof-of-work thing and like you start to get into it and you're like, wow, like that's, that's, a, new, that's, that's a genuinely new thing. Uh, like it builds on research that people have been working on for a long time, but like it's, it's been brought together in a genuinely new way. Um, and so that's sort of phase two. And then phase three is you kind of come up with these list of objections, right? And how's it going to scale and how's it going to perform? And what about this 10 minute thing? And like, isn't the blockchain going to get too big? And, um, you know, notwithstanding Newsweek's forensic expert, disk space actually still does matter um, in 2014. Um, and so like, how are you going to deal with all these practical realities? And then you, you dig into it and what you realize is at least every single issue I've been able to come up with, Satoshi anticipated. I, and this is really remarkable. I mean, this is what is kind of so amazing. And so sort of from a conceptual standpoint, I think the answers are already present. Um, now, we have a lot of implementation to do, right? And so the, the, the ideas are there. So, for example, transaction fees are, are a great example. So, um, you know, the critique of Bitcoin, the critique of Bitcoin is, 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 is sort of what you said, which is like, okay, today you've got these miners who are like processing all these transactions because they have this self-interest, you know, because they get these new Bitcoin. Uh, coming out of the mining process, you know, what happens when they, that's no longer profitable or what happens over, you know, in the long run when, when, when the curve flattens out and there's not a lot of new Bitcoin getting issued, you know, what will be the incentive to process all the transactions? And then it'll be transaction fees and then basically the, the counter you know, sort of argument goes and then you're right back to where you are today. And that's where, I, that's, where, that's where then you go reread the original paper and you're like, wait a minute, he thought of that. Um, and what actually happens is people have the ability, starting now, uh, to be able to attach arbitrary transaction fees to transactions. And even today, um, if you're a miner, you can choose to mine transactions, um, process transactions that have uh, transaction fees attached if you want in preference to the ones who don't. So there's already the beginning of a floating liquid market uh, for transaction fees. Um, as you scale up over time, transaction fees will come to dominate, but unlike today where transaction fees are set by central institutions and by governments, um, in this market it will be a completely floating transaction, completely market-based transaction fee system. And so the transaction fees over the long run will basically be the marginal, you know, basically the marginal cost of mining, uh, plus, you know, a little bit. Um, and that little bit will determine how fast transactions get processed. Um, and so the thing that I know, just like logically, is that we'll, th there will be transaction fees and they will be low and the price will be driven down over time because the system is wired to do that. 
we all still have yet to build all this, right? So most miners today are not prioritizing this. There's a lot of work in the mining code that has to be done to be able to do this at scale. You know, most, cons you know, most wallet services don't yet know what to do with transaction fees or don't deal with transaction fees. And so there's a lot of implementation work to be done. Um, but conceptually, the thing is as bulletproof as anything I've ever seen. And you know, so building on that, uh, in the early internet, you know, you can find endless quotes. I won't like, embarrass the people who, who gave them, who said, oh, the internet can't possibly scale. You know, to handle as much as people are talking about, how are we possibly going to do, you know, online, you know, video chat when we can barely send a packet back and forth? We've got modems and so on and so forth. And they were right based on the snapshot of where they could see in like three years out, but not, you know, ten or fifteen years out with wireless broadband and, and stuff like that. That's one. Then number two is in terms of specific issues, you asked like where 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 areas we see for improvement. So I previously mentioned like infrastructure, right? So, but you know, what does that mean? So that means. Um, developer documentation, right? Like the Bitcoin protocol should be the most uh, highly annotated and documented thing out there. I think um, kind of grammars and standardization, that might be too early to do now, but soon you're gonna want actually like a standardization process, uh, sort of like the organic web standardization process. So people who talk about you know the Bitcoin protocol, any new implementation of it would have to be bug for bug compatible with the old one. Well, we've kind of already seen that. It's called web browsers. We had, you know, you know had to deal with that. Um, and uh, I think you know BTCD, some of the new clients that are out there, BTCDs like Run and Go, uh, some of these clients, it'd be really great to start thinking about a standardization process. That'll happen after we document it and whatnot. So I think getting people into the actual core protocol and messing around with it, building it, messing around with the code is, is very important and, and investing more in that. Now, in terms of fees, one way I, I think it's important to think about is you've got the existing financial system, right? And the existing financial system uh, has uh, ATM fees, and it has overdraft fees, and it has wire transfer fees, and it has um, fees of every kind, both at the retail level as well as obviously at the investment level. So, you know, you go into your IPO roadshow and you, you know, get an investment bank, and that is itself kind of a fee, right? Um, and this is because there is kind of these super nodes that have certain permits and control over here. Uh, and with Bitcoin, I think it's interesting to make a table of every fee in finance and ask which of them are actually going to be around in 20 years, right? And you know how much of the profit will kind of go out of the financial system like this and will kind of shrink like this, and then it'll be pushed out to businesses at the nodes, and you treat finance almost like a communications network, right? Um, and as an analogy to this, if you think about the post office, right? Um, okay, so you have a stamp to send a piece of paper mail, right? And there used to be more businesses that were actually run by mail. Uh, and then you take away the profit out of you know, sending a stamp, and now you can send an email for free. You know, can't just send an email for free, maybe, okay, now I can do like online courses. Uh, and in fact, you can do peer-to-peer -peer online courses. So there's new business models that are not based on having this be the scarce resource, um, but you start to have things happening at the end nodes. So you know, with transaction fees, I think an equilibrium will be reached where it's enough to pay for miners in the future, just like you know, kind of supply and demand. But I, I think that that's almost missing the, the point. The point is turn finance into a communication network, take the profit out of a lot of finance in the medium to long term. And then you know, now we have the profit at the end nodes for people who are actually building businesses and doing things of value. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of the promise of Bitcoin isn't just, uh, just the Bitcoin as a currency, Bitcoin as a, another way of transferring value, um, but is actually this idea of crypto ownership and being able to use a blockchain um, as a way of proving that you have something. So it could be you know, something where the blockchain evolves to replace social security numbers and um, you have a private key for your identity rather than this 
uh, string of numbers that anyone else can copy. Uh, to what extent are you guys looking at where the blockchain is going to go in terms of the companies that you want to invest in and the way you want to see this evolve? Yeah, so, I mean, one way of thinking about it is we've got two billion mobile phones out there, and one of the you know, amazing things about mobile phones is even in India or Africa, places that don't have you know, the, uh, the built-in um, phone lines with wireless, you can kind of put a mobile phone in somebody's hands, right? And so an interesting medium to long-term use case, you know, Hernando de Soto has written about how the poor in many countries don't have like defined property rights. They don't have things where they can borrow against. They don't have things that they, you know, that they can say that they have title to, right? So with Bitcoin, you can sort of parachute in over a mobile phone eventually, not right now, but in the next several years, rule of law as a service, right? So you can show that you have title for this or that object that you actually own it. Um, and there's already websites like proofofexistence.com, which will put notary public type stuff into the blockchain. And the question about whether you deploy something on the main Bitcoin blockchain or as its own blockchain and so on is gonna, I think, be de depend on workloads and, and things of that nature. It's sort of like, do you develop as a web app or a mobile app? I think it's gonna be workload dependent. Like Namecoin um, or a DNS resolver may have a different workload than a payment system. And so I think there's gonna be decisions that are made as to you know, technically which one is better. Um, but the blockchain itself is a very interesting data structure where it'll be abstracted out and used for lots of other things. Already we're seeing a lot of pitches on, for example, proof of storage or uh, you know, other kinds of proof rather than proof of work that are you know, kind of taking ideas from the blockchain and then remixing them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we, I mean, it, it sort of a, you were talking earlier about our investment thesis. Like I would say we think that like the blockchain is the big deal um, and that currency is the, the, sort of, the sort of BTC currency is like one of a thousand applications. Um, it's the one that gets all the heat because it's the one that gets everybody all fired up. But um, it's uh, the other 999 are going to be just as important um, or more important in the long run. Um, and so what we would like to do over time is basically have there be a whole sequence of, have these applications all get discovered and developed, and then have, have there be a whole sequence of companies uh, that get built. Um, digital title, uh, di uh, digital um, ownership, digital media assets, um, you know, uh, 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 digital um, you know, stocks and bonds, you know, uh, 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 blockchain-based crowdfunding. You know, insurance contracts, you can just, there's a very, very, very long list of things where if you can have online trust um, in the way that uh, the blockchain provides, you can reinvent, I think, field after field after field. Um, and that's a big thing. That, that's, that to us is probably even more important than anything that is sort of related to the currency today. When do you think that happens? What is the, the trigger for that uh, where we switch over to this kind of expansion of the blockchain? So, I mean, it's kind of, it's like sort of already happening in the sense that, you know, you can redeem Bitcoin for, so anytime you can redeem Bitcoin for some other kind of good, it's almost like that good is being traded in the blockchain right now. Like it is a very first order hack, right? Um, but uh, I think that once people start putting, um, for example, software licenses or things that you can trade in there, the exact first application is going to be pretty important that people use it for other than BTC itself. Um, Namecoin could be interesting in the sense of you can tr if you trade BTC for NTC, you're basically trading you know, a domain or the ability to buy a domain in the blockchain. Um, I think probably in the next five years, certainly we'll see it, probably much sooner than that, maybe in two years. I think if this technology had existed, one of the thought experiments I always try to do is say, if this technology had existed at some point in the past, how would things be different today? Um, and if this technology had existed 40 years ago, I think um, for sure DNS would be totally different. Um, and then quite possibly TCPIP itself. Assignment of IP addresses, okay. for example, routing protocols would be different um, if, you, if you knew you had this capability. Um, and then for sure all the application layer stuff, so email would be different, the web would be different, um, you know, all these uh, social networking would be different, um, uh, you know, uh, all these things would be, uh, e-commerce would be completely different, um, digital media uh, business models would have been completely different. 
And so I, I think you basically just, uh, the way we think about it is just do the thought experiment of like, okay, how would it be different had you known that you had this technology back then, which you didn't, and like run that in your head as kind of an ex, uh, sort of a clean sheet of paper experiment. And then basically, and this is where I get like aggressive, but then basically say, okay, then the world is going to reshape itself in, in that way. In the fullness of time, in the long run, that is what the world will look like because it will be impossible to hold back the implications of the technology. So if you run that thought experiment on one of those things, what does it look like? So advertising is a very good example, right? Like so Chris Dixon and, you know, we've been talking about how advertising is sort of a way that because we didn't have micropayments at the beginning of the internet, we've sort of contorted ourselves into a way via advertising to pay like one fraction, like one one thousandth of a dollar when you visit a page based on your attention, right? And then some fraction of people will pay. But you can imagine ad-free websites that include Bitcoin you know, as payments, and you build basically a Bitcoin wallet into the browser. And just like every year you go and you refill your uh, Google Drive with $20, you know, you put in your credit card information, you don't really think about it too much, you'd refill $20, $50 worth of Bitcoin each year, and that's your browsing for the whole year, right? And then if you have AdSense, then you know, Google has integration, so now you can basically pay with Chrome Bitcoin and no longer see ads, and you have a faster browsing experience, right? So that's just like one example where, you know, um, we can replace potentially advertising micropayments with the real thing. No, the DNS, I mean, you, you have these centralized, you've, you've had on the internet this whole time, you've had these centralized DNS servers, these central, centralized companies that have become very big companies on the basis of running DNS and administering domain names. And like, if we had had the blockchain, you know, 30 years ago, that would have never happened. It, that, those, that would have never existed that way. And, and by the way, the internet would be more resilient as a result. Um, because you wouldn't be able to take it, you, you wouldn't, be, you know, well, the first thing that the, the government in Turkey just did to take down Twitter was take down his DNS record. Like, that would not be possible um, in the alternate world. Um, now, the Turkish government did discover that that wasn't sufficient um, and that they also had to take down the IP addresses. Um, but you could even imagine reinventing routing um, uh, in a completely different way, a completely different peer-to-peer -peer oriented way. Um, and again, like it's not that all this stuff, you know, these, these are big existing systems, the advertising market's big and established, it's not like these things all get replaced in the next five years. But, you know, give us 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, I do think the world will increasingly adapt to what's possible. Um, and we all have the opportunity to build the services and the companies that are gonna make that happen. I think a good rule of thumb is any system where the profit depends on being a super node of some kind, that is a node that can do things other nodes cannot, is going to be changed. Right, so for example, like GoDaddy or anything that is based on domain names has a particular ability to read and write to you know DNS that not everybody has, right? Uh, and uh, you know, like a, a Wells Fargo or a bank has, has some of those properties. And I think it's going to be a long-term process, but in general, any vertical that has supernodes is going to be transitional in intermediate forms, and eventually you're going to have a system that doesn't have such a dependency on supernodes. Are you seeing anything yet of Bitcoin enabling new? new kind of deploying of these technologies? We are seeing many new things. Lots of things. We can't talk yeah. about all of them, but yeah. certainly yeah. advertising, like micropayment type stuff, there's or advertising replacement type stuff, there's a lot of things out there. Yeah, a lot of the stuff we're talking about today, people are working on, yeah. just they haven't announced. Yeah. Um, Balaji, we talked before about AppCoin. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what AppCoin is and how it is this kind of the blockchain protocol yeah, uh, sure. of so, Bitcoin? So this is like a, a post that uh, you know Naval uh, Ravi Khan Evangelist and I kind of worked on. Um, but uh, so essentially the thought is that Bitcoin is potentially uh, a way to, you know, kind of rethink how we fund and, um, you know, monetize and you know, even exit potentially a, a company or, or an organization. Um, the idea would be that a variety of protocols potentially can be rethought of as coins, right? So DNS coin and Tor coin and PKI coin and, and so on and so forth. Many of these protocols that have been backdoored in, in, in various ways by um, uh, three-letter agencies uh, could be reinvented in this distributed fashion. 
And historically, the issue has been how do you get really competent software engineers to kind of do this? Yes, open source has been part of that, and it's done extremely well. But now you can have on top of that the ability to, say, um, have 30% of the coins initially, almost like an equity stake, reserved for the open source developers. And then you pay a small fee in that coin currency to use these servers, right? So you distribute the code open source, and then anything that is um, you know, something where you'd stand up a DNS coin server or a um, Tor coin server, someone would have to send you some Tor coins in order to use that server, right? And that would give value to it, right? So that is a way to think about at least protocols. Uh, a variety of new protocols can now be rethought of and monetized and funded via coinification. So we could fund it by, for example, giving people $5 million for some percent of the coins, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of one. But it's more broad than that, right? So it's not just protocols, but for example, namespaces, right? So um, another way that you can think about, for example, monetizing a, a Twitter coin, like a distributed Twitter that would be built on this. So the server doesn't just have to be a DNS server or a, a Tor server, it could be a Twitter server or a Twitter coin server. And uh, one way you could monetize it is twitter.com front slash Joe or whatever, would be a very valuable name. And then you could have those names be rare and scarce and paid for in Twitter coins. And so Namecoin is kind of also like this. So you can extend it from protocols. You can think about namespaces. And a really interesting question is first, that those two right there are very, very broad ways to monetize things. And I think we'll see dozens, if not hundreds, of these kinds of things out there. So Bitcoin is just the first in, in, a, in a list. But I think what's really interesting and open question is, does it generalize even further beyond that, right? If software is you know, kind of re, uh, eating the world, um, Many, many services, many, many things can be put into one of these two forms. So it's basically a web server that you're standing up and then paying in coins for that. So it's potentially an extremely broad concept. And it means, for example, a lot of things that are sort of done heuristically right now, like valuations and things like that, can change because now you've got like a public ticker sort of for, for each of these things based on, you know, kind of like the same way that Bitcoin's market price has arrived at, supply and demand for these services, right? So there's a lot of really interesting aspects of the AppCoin concept, and that's something that we're very interested in. And we have stealth funded one, yeah, yes. can't say which company, but we have funded one company yeah. that basically has this as their approach, including yeah. their monetization approach. Okay. Yeah. So we, we found one, or we, we'd love to do more. Yeah. Um,